9. Endies, but there does not appear to be any definite custom against their doing so, nor are there any acts which must be performed to qualify for marriage, nor any indications by dress or ornament or otherwise that a boy or girl has attained a marriageable age. Marriages are usually contracted with women of another community, though sometimes the wife will belong to a village of another clan in the same community. Very rarely only is she of another village of the same clan, and still more rarely is she of the same village, clan exogamy being the rule, and marriages within the clan, and still more within the village, being regarded as irregular and indesirable, and people who have contracted them being considered as having clone wrong. There does not appear to be any system of special matrimonial relationship between any communities, and the mode described below by which a youth will by lighting a fire decide in which direction he must travel to seek a wife, would be hardly consistent with any such system. They have their prohibitive rules of consanguinity, but these are based merely upon the number of generations between either party and the common ancestor. The number of degrees within which prohibition applies in this way is two, thus taking it to the grandparent, and the result is that no man or woman may properly marry any descendant of his or her paternal or maternal grandfather or grandmother. However distant the actual relationship of the persons concerned may be, marriages within the prohibited degree do in fact occur, but they are discountenanced, and are rare. Polygyny is usual, and is largely practiced. A man will often have two or three, or sometimes even four, wives, and a chief or rich man may have as many as six. In the case of an ordinary person the wives all live with their husband in the same house, but a chief or rich person may have two or more houses. A man who is already married, and then marries again, goes through a formality, if it may be so called, similar to that of a first marriage. Opposition from the first wife sometimes occurs, but this is unusual. Infant betrothals are common, but they are quite informal, and not the subject of any ceremony. The parents in such cases, whether of the same or different communities, are usually intimate friends, and are thus led to offer their children to each other for intermarriage. There is a known case of a girl of 16 or 17 years of age, who was what I can only call betrothed to the unborn son of a chief. A curious element in this case was that at the date, prior to the birth of the proposed husband, of what I call the betrothal, the price for the girl was actually paid a thing which is never done till the marriage and that, as I was most solemnly assured, the living girl and the unborn boy were in fact regarded, not merely as betrothed, but as actually married, and that, when the boy died, which he did in infancy, long before marital relationship between them was possible, the girl was regarded as being a widow. I could not ascertain what happened as regards the price which had been paid for the girl. A couple betrothed in childhood are not subject to any restrictions as to meeting and mutual companionship, nor is there any mutual avoidance, nor any increased probability, based on their betrothal, of immorality between them. Though in the more usual case of betrothal between children of different communities they in ordinary course are not likely to be constantly seeing each other, the young man will speak of his sweetheart, present or prospective, as his ogent, which means his flower, and this is so even if he does not yet know her, and, when asked where he is going, he will reply that he is going to seek an ogent, if he is not already betrothed, and is matrimonially inclined, he has various expedients for accomplishing his desires. A boy who wants to marry, and does not know where to seek a wife, will sometimes light a fire in the bush, or better still in an open space not in the village, when the air is still, 
and wait until a slight breeze blows the flame or smoke a little in some one direction, and he will then select a community or a village which lies in that direction as the spot in which to seek a wife. A boy will often carry in a small bag this does not refer to the special small charm bag already described some pieces of wood and stone, and will rub a piece of tobacco between two of these, and send this tobacco to the girl of his choice through a female relative of hers or some other friend, and he believes that in some mysterious way this will draw her heart towards him, and make her accept him. The pieces of wood and stone need not be of any particular kind, but he will have carried them for a considerable time, until they have, as he thinks, acquired the specific odor of his body, and it is then that they have obtained their special power. It is impossible to induce a boy to part with a piece of wood or stone which has been so seasoned by time, and would take long to replace. Sometimes a boy will acquire these things by purchase from a magic man, who professes to be able to impart to them a more effective power. A proposal of marriage is usually made by the boy through some female relative of the girl, or other suitable person, and not directly by him to the girl herself. Another custom may be mentioned here, though it only relates to a man who is already married, but wants another wife or wives. In clearing the bush for yam gardens it is usual, as regards the smaller trees, to cut away the side branches only, leaving the main trunks for posts up which the yams will climb but the man in question will in the case of one only one of these smaller trees leave and cut one, two, or three of the upper branches, the number so left being the number of the wives he desires, and everyone understands its meaning. As regards the relationship of unmarried boys and girls generally, they are allowed to associate together, without any special precautions to prevent misconduct, and a good deal of general immorality exists. The marriage ceremony, following a parental betrothal, or with parental acquiescence, is a very informal matter, and in fact both the bargaining for the wife and the ceremony of the marriage are in striking contrast to the elaborate system of bargaining and mock rating by the girl's family, and the wedding ceremonies, which are adopted in Mako, a day is fixed for the marriage, and on that day the boy goes to the house of the girl's parents, after which he and she and her parents go to the house of the boy's parents, and the girl is paid for them and there. After this the young people immediately live together as a married couple in the house of either his or her parents, until he has been able to build a house for himself. Neither are there any special ceremonies in connection with the fixing of the price. This is generally very small. Dog's teeth, pearl shell, necklaces, adzes, etc. are the usual things in which it is paid, but there is always a pig, which has been killed under, or on the site of, the grave platform above referred to, the price. In fact, depends upon the position and wealth of the girl's parents, except that there is always only one pig. The price is paid to the father of the girl, or, if dead, to her eldest brother or other nearest male paternal relative. A runaway marriage is still simpler. The boy has proposed to the girl through her friend, and she has consented, and they simply run off into the bush together, and remain in the bush, or the gardens, or a distant village until the boy's friends have succeeded in propitiating the girl's father, and the price has been paid, and then the couple return to the village. After marriage, the husband and wife are not as a rule faithful to each other, the marriage tie being only slight. Adultery on the part of the wife, but not of the husband, is regarded as a serious offense. If discovered, the injured husband will beat the guilty wife, and is entitled to kill the man with whom she has misconduct herself, and will usually do so, though nowadays he often dares not do so in districts where he fears government punishment. 
sometimes he will be content if the adulterer pays him a big price, say a pig, and this compensation is now commonly accepted in districts where the husband dares not kill, in either case, the husband generally keeps the wife, formal divorce or separation does not exist, a husband who wants to get rid of his wife will make her life so miserable that she runs away from him, but more usually the separation originates with the wife, who, not liking or being tired of her husband, or being in love elsewhere, will run away and elope altogether with another man. In such a case, the husband may retaliate on that other man in the way already mentioned, but that is rather the method adopted in cases of incidental adultery, and as a rule, when the wife actually elopes, she and her paramour go off to some other community, and the husband submits to the loss. He will, however, claim from the wife's people the price which he paid for her on his marriage. This is sometimes paid, but not always, and, as the wife almost always belongs to another clan, and generally to another community, the refusal to pay this claim is one of the frequent causes of fighting, the members of the husband's clan, and often the whole community, joining him in a punitive expedition, when a man dies, or at all events after the removal by the widow of her mourning, she goes back to her own people, generally taking with her any of their young children who are then living in the house, there is no devolution of the wife to the husband's brother, or anything of that nature, nor, in case of the death of the wife, does the husband marry her sister, speaking of the people generally, it may certainly be said that sexual morality among men, women, boys and girls is very low, and there is no punishment for immorality, except as above stated, chapters I killing, cannibalism, and warfare killing, individual killing in personal quarrel, as distinguished from slaying in warfare, is exceedingly rare, except in cases of revenge upon adulterers, in these cases, however, it is regarded as the appropriate punishment, and even the family of the adulterer would hardly retaliate, if satisfied as to his guilt, there is no system of head-hunting, or of killing victims in connection with any ceremonies, or of burying alive, or of killing old and sick people, though the ceremonial blow on the head of a reputed dying man must sometimes be premature, abortion and infanticide, however, are exceedingly common, the more usual practice being that of procuring abortion, although sexual immorality so largely exists, and young and married women and girls are known to indulge in it so freely, and it is not seriously reprobated, it is regarded as a disgrace for one to give birth to a child, and if she gets into trouble she will procure abortion or kill the child, the same thing is also common among married women, on the ground that they do not wish to have more children, there is another cause for this among married women, which is peculiar, a woman must not give birth to a child until she has given a pig to a village feast, and if she does so it will be a matter of reproach to her, if, therefore, she finds herself about to have a child, and there is no festal opportunity for her to give a pig, or if, though there be a feast, she cannot afford to give a pig, she will probably procure abortion or kill the child when born, I was told by Father Chado, the father superior of the mission, that among the neighboring Kuni people a woman would kill her child for extraordinary reasons, and he furnished an example of this in a woman who killed her child so that she might use her milk for suckling a young pig, which was regarded as being more important. Whether such a thing would occur in Mafulu appears to be doubtful, but it is quite possible, more especially as the Mafulu women do, in fact, suckle pigs. Abortion is induced by taking the heavy stone mallet used for bark cloth beating, and striking the woman on the front of the body over the womb, 
it is also assisted by the wearing of the tight cane belt already mentioned. I could not hear of any system of using drugs or herbs to procure abortion, but herbs are used to produce general sterility, which they are believed to be effective in doing. Married women also often kill their children as the result of a sort of superstitious ceremony. The child being born, the mother, in accordance with the custom of the country, goes down to the river, and throws the placenta into it. She then, however, often takes a little water from the river, and gives it to the babe. If the latter seems by the movements of its lips and tongue to accept and take the water into its mouth, it is a sign that it is to live, and it is allowed to do so. If not, it is a sign that it is to die, and she throws it into the river. This custom, which is quite common, has presumably had a superstitious origin, and it seems to be practiced with superstitious intent now. There appears, however, to be no doubt that it is also followed for the purpose of keeping or killing the child. According to the wish of the mother, there is further, confirming the last statement, a well-known practice, when the mother goes down to the river with her baby, for some other woman, who is childless and desires a child, to accompany the mother, and take from her and adopt the baby, and as to this, there is no doubt that, before doing so, the woman ascertains from the mother whether or not she intends to keep her child, and only goes with her to the river if she does not intend to keep it, this is done quite openly with the full knowledge of the second woman's husband and friends, and everyone knows that the child is not really hers, and how she acquired it. Cannibalism. There is no doubt that the Mafula people had always been cannibals, and are so still, subject now to the fear in which they hold the controlling authority of the white man, and which impels such of them as are in close touch with the latter to indulge in their practice only in secrecy. Their cannibalism has been, and island however, of a restricted character. They do not kill for the purpose of eating, and they only eat bodies of people who have been intentionally killed, not the bodies of those who have been killed by accident, or died a natural death. Also the victim eaten is always a member of another community. The killing which is followed by eating is always a hostile killing in fight, but this fight may be either a personal and individual one, or it may be a community battle. The idea of eating the body appears to be a continued act of hostility rather than one of gastronomic enjoyment, and I could learn nothing of any belief as to acquiring the valor and power of the deceased by eating him. I was informed that the man who has killed the victim will never himself share in the eating of him, this being the case both as regards people killed in private personal fighting and those killed in war. I tried to find out if there were any ceremonies connected with the eating of human flesh, but could learn nothing upon the subject, the natives being naturally not readily communicative with white men on the matter. Warfare. Warfare generally occurs between one community or section of a community probably a clan and another community or section of one, it very rarely occurs within a community. Sometimes two communities join together in opposition to a third one, but alliances of this sort are usually only of a temporary character. War among these people is now, of course, forbidden by the British authorities, and indulgence in it is a serious punishable offense, but it cannot be said to be abolished. The usual ground for an attack is either that some member of the attacked community or section of a community has by personal violence or by spirit-supported sorcery killed a member of the attacking community or section, or it is of the matrimonial character above explained. The underlying idea of the war is a life for a life, and in the matrimonial matter one life is the sum of vengeance required. Hence the primary object of an attack has usually been accomplished when the attacking party has killed one of their opponents. If there are two or more persons whose deaths have to be avenged, 
a corresponding number of lives is required in the battle, then the attacking party may suffer loss during the fight, in which case this has to be added to the account, and loss by the attack is introduced into the other side of it to their credit. The number killed in a battle is not, however, often great. When the required vengeance has been accomplished, the attacking party usually cease fighting and return home. If the enemy allow them to do so, they may retire before their vengeance has been accomplished, but in that case they are probably doing so as a defeated party, with the intention of renewing the attack on a subsequent occasion. If the attacking party cease fighting and try to return, the enemy may continue their counter-attack, especially if they had themselves suffered loss in the fighting, but I was told that the enemy would not as a rule follow the attacking party far into the bush. It may be that what is regarded by the attackers as a correct balance of lives struck, on which they may retire, is not so regarded by the enemy, in which case the latter may try to prolong the fight, and, if the attackers get away, there will probably be a retaliatory expedition, in which the position of attackers and attacked is reversed. The primary idea of a life for a life island however, generally understood and acknowledged, and if the enemy recognize the truth of the alleged reason for the attack, and had not lost more life than was required to balance the account, they usually rest satisfied with the result. No ceremony or taboo appears to be adopted in anticipation of proposed hostilities for the purpose of securing success, but individual fighters often wear charms, upon whose efficacy they rely, nor do there appear to be any omens in connection with them other than certain general ones to be referred to hereafter. The preparations for a fight and its conduct can hardly be regarded as subjects of much organization, as the chiefs are not war chiefs, and there are no recognized permanent leaders or commanders of the forces, and no recognized war councils or systematic organization, either of the fighting party or of the conduct of the fight. All adult males of the community engaged are expected to take part, and the leadership will generally fall upon someone who at the moment is regarded as a strong and wise fighter. The men start off on their expedition as an armed, but an organized, body, their arms being spears, bows and arrows, clubs, adzes and shields, and none of their weapons being poisoned. During their progress to the enemy's community they are generally singing, and their song relates to the grievance the avenging of which is the object of the expedition. The warriors do not, I was told, as a rule carry a full supply of provisions, as they rely largely upon what they can find in the bush and what they hope to raid from their enemies' plantations. On reaching the scene of battle they adopt methods of spying and scouting and sentry duty, though only on simple and in scientific lines. They had apparently no generally recognized systems of signs of truce or truce envoys or hostages. There are certain recognized cries, which respectively signify the killing of a man and the taking of a prisoner, by which, when such an event occurs, the fighters on both sides are aware of it. An enemy wounded on the battlefield may be killed at once or may be taken prisoner. All prisoners, wounded or otherwise, are taken home by the party that secures them, and are then killed, apparently without any prior torture, and generally eaten. A prisoner thus carried off would be regarded as a man killed, which in fact he shortly will be. The women of a community follow their fighting men in the expedition, their duty being to encourage the fighters on the way out, and during the fight, by their singing, but they remain in the rear during the battle, and do not actually fight. These women, of course, also run the risk of being killed or wounded or taken prisoners. Fighting between two communities may go on intermittently for years, then perhaps the communities may get mutually weary of it, and decide to make peace. 
This act is ratified by an exchange between the two communities of ceremonial visits, with feasts and pig killing, but no dancing. The pigs and vegetables and fruit distributed by the hosts among the visitors on the return visit being exactly similar in character and quantity to what the latter have given the former on the prior visit. The mafulu or spears are made out of a very hard-wooded palm tree and another hard red-wooded tree, the name of which I do not know. They are round in section, tapering at both ends, and are generally from 10 to 12 feet long, and about three quarters of an inch in diameter at the widest part. There are three forms of point. The first plate 73, figure 1 is simply a tapering off in round section. The second plate 73, figure 2 is made square in section for a distance of 2 to 1 2 feet from the tip. The third plate 73, figure 3 is in section a triangle, of which two sides are equal and the other side is a little larger. This triangular form being carried for a foot or less from the tip, and the larger surface being barbed bilaterally. This last mentioned form is also generally decorated with a little tuft of bright colored feathers, just above the point where the barbing begins. The bows plate 74, figure 1 are made of split bamboo, the convex side of the bow being the intersection of the split bamboo. These bows are quite short, generally about 4 feet long when straightened out, and have triangular shaped knobs at the ends for holding the bowstrings. The bowstrings are made of what appears to be strong split canes not sugar canes. The arrows plate 73, figure 4 are from 6 to 8 feet long, which is extraordinary in comparison with the length of the bows, and are made in two parts, the shaft being made of a strong reed, and the point, which is inserted into the reed shaft and is generally a foot or more long, being single and round sectioned, and made of the same materials as are used for spears. There are no feathers or equivalents of feathers, and the shaft end of the arrow is cut square and not notched. The clubs plate 75. Figures 1 and 2 are stone-headed, the heads being of the pineapple and disc types, but these heads are the same as those used on the plains and coast, whose people, in fact, get them from the mountains, and as these are so well known, it is not necessary for me to describe them. The ads is plate 75, figure 4 are of the usual type, the stone blade being lashed directly onto the handle. There are two common forms, in one, which is also used for ordinary ads work. The haft is cut from a natural branch, with the angle of the head part set obliquely. In the other, which is also used for cutting timber, the haft is cut from a branch with the angle of the head part set at right angles, or nearly so. I do not know to what extent this second form is common in New Guinea. It is not found in Mako. The shields plate 74. Figures 2 and 3 are thick, heavy, cumbrous weapons, made out of the wood used for making wooden dishes. The outer surfaces are convex and the inner ones concave, the natural convexity of the circular trunk of the tree from which they are made being retained. These shields are for 1 to 2 5 feet long, and usually about 15 or 16 inches wide in the broadest central part, getting somewhat narrower towards the two ends, where they are rounded off. Each shield has two strong cane handles in the center of its internal concave side, each of which handles is fixed by means of two pairs of holes bored through the shield and of thongs which are passed through these holes and attached to the ends of the handles. The shields are carried by passing the left arm through the upper handle downwards, the left hand holding the lower handle. Chapter XII Hunting, Fishing and Agriculture Hunting. This is engaged in more or less all the year round, especially as regards wild pigs when wanted for village killing. The animals chiefly hunted are pigs, kangaroos, wallabies, the McGregor bear, large snakes cassowaries and other birds, 
The hunting weapons and contrivances used are spears, bows and arrows, nets and traps, but adzes and clubs are used in connection with net hunting. The spears are those used for war. The bows and arrows employed for hunting animals and cassowaries are also the same as those used for war, but these are not much used. For bird shooting excluding cassowary shooting they generally use arrows plate 73. Figure 5 The points of which are made of four rather fine pieces of bamboo cane, closely bound together at the place of insertion into the reed shaft, and also bound together further down, but with a piece of stick or some other material inserted between them inside the second binding, so as to keep them a little apart and make them spread outwards, thus producing a four-pronged point. The arrows vary in length from 5 to 6 or 7 feet, and their points vary from 4 to 10 inches. The adzes and clubs are the same as those used for war. The people generally hunt in large parties for pigs hunted with either spears or nets. Kangaroos and wallabies hunted with nets only, and McGregor bears, cassowaries, and big snakes hunted with spears only. The hunters may be members of a single village or of a whole community. They generally return home on the same day, except when hunting the McGregor bear, which is only found on the tops of high mountains, and so requires a longer expedition. They usually take out with them large numbers of young boys, who are not armed, and do not take part in the actual killing, but who, when the party reaches the hunting ground, spread out in the bush, and so find the animals. While doing this the boys bark like dogs. Sometimes dogs are taken instead, but this is unusual, as they have not many dogs. A preliminary ceremony is performed by a person whose special duty at island and who, I think, is usually the pig killer. He takes a particular kind of fragrant grass, makes an incantation over it, rubs it on the noses of the dogs if there are any, and then ties it in several portions to the meshes of the net to be used, if there are dogs, but no net. Then, after rubbing the dogs' noses, he throws the grass away, if there is a net, but no clogs. Then, after making the incantation, he ties the grass onto the net as above mentioned. This appears to be the only ceremony in connection with hunting, and there is no food or other taboo associated with it. But some of the charms worn are intended to give success in hunting. In spear hunting, when children and not dogs are employed, the children shout as soon as the animal has been found, and then retreat, and, when the animal has been found by either children or dogs, the hunting men attack it with their spears, if possible surrounding it. In net hunting, which of course can only be adopted in fairly open spaces. The hunters place their net by means of pole supports in the form of a crescent, perhaps as much as 50 or 60 yards long. This length, however, requiring several nets put end to end together, and two or three feet high, the net is generally put across the base of a narrow ravine, or across a narrow ridge, these being the routes along which the animals usually travel. The children or dogs search for the animal, as in spear hunting, and when it is found, most of the hunters place themselves in a crescent-shaped formation behind the animal, so that it is between them and the net, and then gradually close in upon it, and so drive it into the net. Behind the net are other hunters, more or less hidden, who kill the animal with club or adze when it is caught in the net. They sometimes use spears in the event of an animal jumping over the net, and so trying to escape. Though in net hunting the spears are more especially carried for purposes of self-defense in case of an attack by the animal, there is always an enormous amount of shouting all through the hunt. When the animal has been caught, they generally kill it then and there, except as regards pigs required alive for village ceremony, and which are disabled, but not killed. The huntings, 
except when pigs are specially required, are usually general, and when any sort of animal has been killed the hunters are content, they surround the beast, and make three loud shouting screams, by which the people of the village or community know, not only that an animal has been killed, but also what the animal is, it is then brought home, and eaten by the whole village, if the hunt be a village hunt, or by the community, if it be a community hunt, individual hunting, in which I include hunts by parties of two or three, is also common, solitary hunters are generally only searching for birds not cassowaries, but parties of two or three will go after larger game, such as pigs, cassowaries, etc., such parties hunt the larger game with spears, clubs and adzes, and shoot the birds, other than cassowaries, with bows and arrows, they kill their victims as they can, and bring them home, and they, and probably some of their friends, eat them, trap hunting is much engaged in by single individuals, a common form of trap used for pigs is a round hole about 6 feet deep and 2 feet in diameter, which is dug in the ground anywhere in the usual tracks of the pigs, and is covered over with rotten wood, upon which grass is spread, and into this hole the pig falls and cannot get out, the maker of the hole does not necessarily stay by it, but will visit it from time to time in the hope of having caught a pig, small tree climbing animals are often caught by a plan based upon the inclination of an animal, seeing a continuous line, to go along it, a little pathway of sticks is laid along the ground, commencing near a suitable tree, and carried up to the base of that tree, and then taken up the trunk, and along a branch, on which it terminates, the parts upon the tree being bound to it with cane, that the branch termination of this path is either a noose trap, made out of a piece of native string tied at one end to the branch, and having at the other end a running noose in which the animal is caught, or a very primitive baitless framework trap, so made that the animal, having once got into it, cannot get out again, or instead of a trap, the man will erect a small rough platform upon the same tree, upon which platform he waits, perhaps all night, until the animal comes, and then shoots it with his bow and arrow, another form of trap for small animals is a sort of alley along the ground, fenced in on each side by a palisading of sticks, and having at its end a heavy overhanging piece of wood, supported by an easily moved, 